As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stasekel, joined as always by my friend and colleague Paul Tenorio. And Paul, we have a very special guest with us here off of the top of the show, uh, a buddy of ours from over in the UK, Phil Hay, Leeds United reporter, writer, extraordinaire for The Athletic. Uh, Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Much pleased. Yeah, of, of course. And so obviously Leeds is is the new team in America. Um, yeah. We saw Tyler Adams walking a around the fields on Sunday at Ellen road after, after that win against Chelsea with draped in an American flag. Um, you know, I was joking with, with some of my friends here um, on my men's league team who are British uh, just on Tuesday night that, that the U S had won the world cup on Sunday, um, <laughs> judging by the reaction. So, um, <laughs> so we wanted to have you on to talk about, about Leeds and Jesse Marsh and Tyler Adams and Brendan Aronson, and maybe even a little bit of Jack Harrison. MLS alum yeah, himself yeah, who spent why a lot not? of time yeah. in the United that. States. So uh, first, I mean, one of the things, and I just want to start really broad here. Can you just set the scene for us on Sunday, what that atmosphere was like? Because on TV here in the States, it looked absolutely incredible. I think the best I can say about it is that it compares to any atmosphere we've seen over the past four years, and considering how good those years have been for Leeds United, particularly the Marcelo Bielsa era, the first three seasons where he was head coach, that's no small achievement and it's no small point to make. I mean, we, there's a lot to be said about the football itself on Sunday, how technically good it was, you know, how, how tactically clever it was, how effective it was over 90 minutes. But there was more of a symbolic side to Sunday, I think, which was the first time, certainly in my view, but I think everybody felt this, the first time that people had properly embraced the Jesse Marsh era, the first time that people went away from the ground thinking, wow, you know, this, there's something here. You know, Marsh evidently has it in him. And actually, this is potentially an era that we can believe in, that we can expect good things from and big things from. There was a, there was a very emotional outburst to Bielsa's sacking back in February. And it was an incredibly difficult time for anybody to to come to the club as head coach. It was Marsh ultimately who picked up the pieces. But it always seemed to me that because of the success Bielsa had been and because his success had followed a period for Leeds, which was meandering and incompetent and, you know, for so many seasons showed so little potential and achieved nothing of any note. Bielsa was rightly fated in Leeds and, and you know, is, is renowned as the best head coach they've had in a generation. And to replace him was always going to be a challenge. It was far more of a challenge because of the way it happened and because he was sacked mid-season, which was never the expectation and was never the, the idea. And I personally feel that since that point, Leeds have been stuck in this void of not being sure how to emotionally move on from Bielsa and struggling to emotionally invest as a club and as a fan base in Marsh, which ultimately they were going to have to do if they were ever going to move forward and, and start to think about what was coming as opposed to, to what they'd lost. But I honestly do think that that on Sunday was a huge step forward for him because it did feel for the first time as if people were saying to themselves, actually, we like this and we like him, we like what he's doing, we like what he's doing with the team, 
we like the way that the, the, the new signings have fitted into his system and, and seem to be working for it. And I think it's probably a watershed moment which has cleared the air and means that now, you know, the club and the fan base can move on with, with some anticipation about what's coming. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Phil, because, um, you know, you and I spoke before the season started and, and you know, made some phone calls about a town hall that Jesse Marsh took part in when he took over as the Red Bulls manager, New York Red Bulls manager, um, where the fans there were quite upset that he had taken over from Mike Petke, um, who had been a very successful manager there, had been a player um, and was was beloved by the franchise. And Jesse, you know, came in and, and eventually found success to win the fan base over. And the question was, essentially, could he do the same with Leeds? And I found it interesting in part because, you know, Jesse was the manager that helped keep Leeds up. Um but that wasn't enough, was it, to to kind of convince them? They 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 sort of believed that that would have happened without him. Uh, it seems, and and they, you know, he it looked like he needed more. He needed something more to to truly convince them. Leeds didn't play well in enough in the final twelve games of last season for anybody to be certain if they avoided relegation by design or by default. I mean, there's an argument to to say that in the end they were very lucky. They, they won when it mattered down at Brentford, but the, the, the state of play on that day was still that if, if Burnley had beaten Newcastle um, elsewhere, Leeds would have gone down, regardless of the result in London. And it was a struggle for him to, to establish a tactical plan that stuck, I think because it was always going to be difficult to move from Bielsa's defined style of play to another style of play overnight. And, and essentially Leeds needed that to happen because they needed results and they needed, needed points. So it wasn't that he wasn't giving credit for them avoiding relegation, but I don't think in any way it answered the question of whether or not he was right for the job, whether of all the coaches out there, bearing in mind that you have a world of managers and, and head coaches in European football and, and the States as well, but you know, predominantly the market that Leeds would have looked at would have been Europe. Um, of all the coaches out there, was he the right choice and was he the right pick? And I think we went into this season you know, still uncertain about that and still still unsure. And I think that's why Sunday was so important and so necessary for him, especially to come early in the fixture list. I think more than anything, what they needed to avoid this season was a streak of seven, eight, nine, ten games in which people continue to ask themselves, you know, where is this going? Is this going to work? Do we, do we actually have faith in this guy? Whereas what's happened is three games in, they've beaten a very strong Chelsea side. They've beaten them extremely convincingly. And it doesn't. See, I think it's reasonable for people to go away from that and say, "Look, you know, you, to an extent, you need to keep your powder dry, and you still need to judge him over a prolonged stretch of games." But it would be completely unreasonable to go away from that and not think that something in his football and something in his tactical model is has actually given Leeds real promise and and is well worth sticking with. Phil, I wanted to ask you more about the player side a little bit as well, because we talk about these doubts with with Jesse Marsh and the fan base, and I think there were. Some, there was some skepticism as well about this summer. Leeds losing Rafinha, losing Calvin Phillips, bringing in Tyler Adams, Mark Roca, Brendan Aronson, among others. Um, certainly nobody as high profile or with the track record of success as those two previous players that I had mentioned that went on to Barcelona and Manchester City. Um, what was the initial reaction, particularly to Aronson and, and, and Adams, knowing that Aronson was a target before Marsh even arrived? Um, and how do you think they've they've begun life at Leeds and how have they been received thus far? The doubt about Aronson more than anything was the price Leeds paid what would be the equivalent of more than 30 million US dollars for him, um, which is very, very close to their record transfer fee. And there wasn't, I don't think, any doubt about whether Aronson was potentially a good player or a talented player. It was whether or not he was going to live up to the, the amount of money that had been spent on him. We had questions as, about that, by the way. Well, <laughs> like, that that figure is, for us was it, like, whoa, yeah. Um, and yet here we are two games in, three games in, and everybody is looking at him thinking he looks like great value for money, especially if you consider the context of the type of fees that have been paid in the Premier League this summer. Who is paying what for who? It is it, the money has gone through the roof. The valuation of players has gone through the roof, and suddenly, you know, thirty million dollars is not a huge amount of money for a football in the Premier League. But it is for Leeds. You know, it isn't the sort of fee that they've been used to paying over the past twenty years. With, with Phillips and Rafinha, it was certainly true that they were losing the two best players without any question. But I think the difference this summer potentially to other summers is that. Had they had they been going ahead this summer, the same framework, the same style of team, the same system, and they'd lost Phillips and Rafinha, 
then they would have been under extreme pressure to directly replace them to do exactly the same jobs that they've been doing previously. But that, but as it is, Marsh is playing with kind of two holding midfielders rather than one, as Bielsa did with um, with Calvin Phillips. He's using this line behind the centre forward of what is essentially, I think, three number 10s. You know, there isn't the extreme width that wingers give you in there. That isn't the system. That isn't what he wants. So to some extent, you could say that Rafinha, that that is a, a line of three that can cope without somebody like Rafinha, the type of Rafinha that, that the type of player that Rafinha is. And I think what Leeds have done well this summer is that they've targeted players who had the attributes and the, the talent to fit into precisely the system that Marsh was was going for. I don't know exactly how it works in the States, but in European football, there are a lot of clubs who take quite a broad view with rec- recruitment to make sure that they sign players who are fundamentally good players, which means that if you're tired of your head coach or if you sack your head coach, you still have resources there that you like and you want to keep. But in this instance, I do feel like they've heavily backed Marsh and heavily backed his model, you know, have recruited specifically to fit into that. And I think that has helped because these some of these players understand it already. They've worked with him previously and they do have the, the you know, the natural traits that let them fit into it. So to answer about Adams and um, Aronson, I thought Adams was man of the match against Chelsea. I just thought his industry and his graft, you, you know, unspectacular. You don't get many Hollywood passes from Adams, but you get so much work and you get so much that fac- facilitates the rest of the performance. That was really eye-catching. And I thought Aronson was a was a close second. He just looks like he could be a handful all season. And I think, and Leeds love this, he looks like somebody who could be worth considerably more money further down the line. Yeah, yeah it, it'll be interesting to see. You know, I, I do think that Aronson's ceiling is higher than anyone anticipated. And, yeah. and you know, his role at the World Cup, you know, could be changing based on his performances so far uh, for Leeds. I think he could become a player who, you know, maybe seizes that that star role for the U.S. that everyone expects Christian Pulisic to fill, but may may indeed be filled by by Brendan Aronson. Um, and, you know, here in the U.S., we've we've seen some of these players growing and and certainly the level of of youth development and the players that are coming through the academies here in the US and through major league soccer have changed but i've always said on on this show and elsewhere that there's a, a perception gap um, between what we see in the day to day of mls and and still clearly a league that that has a long way to go and a long way to grow um, and what the perception is around around the league and the players and and coaches coming out of the league and, you know, Sam and I were talking before the show today, and we feel like this game on the weekend may have been a big step for a wider audience in starting to close that gap to see, you know, Tyler and and Brendan playing as well as they did. Jack Harrison, a player who came through MLS before moving back to England, um, also playing well. And of course, Jesse, Jesse managing. It's, it's a short time frame for Leeds, considering comparatively. But do you see that perception gap changing like almost immediately? Is the idea of what an American or an MLS product um, capable of, is that changing amongst the Leeds fan base or, or in England in general? Well, when, when, we, when I came on this podcast, when we started, you were talking about you know the reaction to it on Sunday and the American flags out and everything else. And, and it is nice to be talking like that because we went through the inevitable process, as you do in England and also in Europe, when you recruit. I think particularly an American coach, but also when American players go into the you know the system, of do these players do these people understand the sport? Now, more and more, I, I find that really quite out of order, and I, and it seems odd to be free to label a specific nationality like that in the way that you just would never do with ethnic minorities or you know certain other nationalities, religions, anything like that. You would never take this broad you know, broad stroke of a brush and say, these people do not understand football. And I always try to say about, you know, Anson and, and Roberts, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Tyler Adams. We did have a player called Tyler Roberts, so I'm, I'm constantly tripping over that one. <laughs> Adams and Aronson both have a grounding in European football. You know, Adams has been at Leipzig. Aronson has been at Salzburg. They've played in the Champions League. They've played in European competitions. They've had that that grounding. And, and Marsh himself has been a coach at Salzburg. He's been a coach at, at Leipzig, albeit briefly. So these are not people who've jumped straight out of MLS and landed in the Premier League. Not that I think that specifically matters. Um, but I think you have to give them the credit of saying that actually they've learned and developed in a variety of places. And actually, if you're being totally honest, 
probably more broadly than a lot of English coaches do, for example. A lot of English coaches and a lot of English players spend their entire careers in England. You know, that's that's kind of how it is and, and how it's always been. So without any doubt, it, I think that on, on Sunday changes the tone of the coverage and changes the tone from scepticism to actual appreciation of what they're doing. But when I interviewed Marsh uh, back when he first got the job, he said to me, you know, I do want to see the door open for more American coaches and players. It's just difficult for me to think too much about trying to fly that flag because this is a really tough job. This is going to demand a lot of me. And there's the question mark over whether when you're a Premier League coach who is under such pressure to deliver results, you really have the freedom or the flexibility to think more broadly about, you know, kind of, I guess, national exposure or, or what it might do. But suffice to say, Marsh doing really well at Leeds and in the Premier League will do... American uh, soccer in America, the world of good. <laughs> um, good catch there. Don't want to call it American football. It has another meaning. I would, you see, the problem here is that American football <laughs> means a completely different thing as well. So it really <laughs> does. It really does. We're, we're in the midst of preseason NFL, Phil. It's it's ubiquitous here. It's incredible. It's just like the Premier League over there. I'm sure. My knowledge but, on that front is even worse than my knowledge of soccer, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> Our school, I think. Um, I... One thing that's kind of been striking to me is is Marsh's demeanor on the sideline. Extremely expressive, which is no surprise to us having seen him here. Um, but I'm curious how that's received over in England, because on the one hand, you have this guy, he's playful in press conferences. He can be a little bit combative. Um, you know, he, he sticks up for what he believes in and he doesn't really take any crap when people insinuate that he might not know something because of his nationality. Um, and then you have him kind of, you know, wilding out on the sideline, maybe if you want to interpret it in a certain way, uh, being a bit of a troll towards Thomas Tuchel. <laughs> um, so I'm curious how that's been received, um, both, you know, on Sunday, I'm sure everyone's loving it, but those sorts of things can turn quickly. And do you put any importance in that in, in terms of like, is there a chance for volatility there um, with how he's received with the fans? There definitely is. I think when your team's playing well, you can pretty much be as you want to be and and you, your supporters will largely embrace it. It has been a big gear change for Leeds because Bielsa was a coach who, almost without fail over 170 games, never criticised the referee once, never fought with an opposition coach once. There would be you know slight flashpoints, but he would never pick a fight with anybody. You know, he would never criticise anybody he he would he, he always kept on the right side of that line if you if you see that as the right side marsh interests me because i think a lot of the time when you see him speaking and, and you see him how he is you know away from football he, he's very personable um i don't think soft would be the right word i don't see him as soft but he, he's just friendly you know he, he doesn't give you the sense that he's got a nasty streak in him but when you speak to people who've played with foreign as a coach, they'll say that, you know, that is definitely there in his teams. When you speak to people who remember him as an MLS player, they'll say that that was definitely there when he was playing. I remember stories, reading stories about him having punch-ups with players in training. You know, there's the famous um, images of, of him squaring up to David Beckham, the game against um, LA Galaxy, <laughs> I, I think it was. Back I in the Chivas it, USA days, I believe. <laughs> yeah, I, I get the sense that he really likes that. And if you're asking me, do I think there are going to be tangles on the touchline at various points this season? Then I think the answer is yes. And I don't think he'll be scared of that. And I don't think he thinks that's a bad thing. He said quite openly, you know, if, if I feel that I'm not getting what we would call the rub of the green from referees, which means you're not getting enough decisions or going your way or as many as you think you should, then I will start saying things that will rail them. You know, we'll rail the fourth official who's who controls the two managerial dugouts um, in English football. Um, the linesman, the referee, you know, I will niggle at them in the hope that that something changes. So it's a it's a definite ploy and, and it's a definite tactic. And and the fact is, if your team's going well and you're playing good football, the crowd love that. They do. They, they love to see you getting in, as engaged in it as they are. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I certainly think that Jesse is able to balance those two things. He, he, mm. he has both a, a huge level of confidence and also... I don't, I don't think it's an insecurity, but it, it's a um, – he's made the decision that he's not going to be pushed around at all or he's not going to be – he's going to demand the respect that he believes he deserves kind of at all times. And, you know, I think it probably is going to serve him and has served him well um, in a place where 
Otherwise, he might be in trouble. But I think he also is able to do it in a way that doesn't come across as, um, you know, overly cocky. He certainly is cocky, but it's not in a way that that will rub people the wrong way all the time, which which is it's an, it's not an easy trick to pull off. <laughs> no. And when when we wrote the piece about the town hall meeting at New York Red Bulls, which I mean, the stuff we got from Frank is it Isola? Frank Isola? Um, Frank Isola, yeah. Was I mean, I just had me in stitches reading the transcript of it. It was so funny. And I can imagine. Did you watch the video, Phil? I have watched the video. I have watched the video. But I think it was the way that Frank told it, you know, just had me in hysterical laughter. And I'm sure it wasn't funny for the four who were there. You know, I'm sure at the time it wasn't funny for, for Frank either. He must have thinking, what on earth have I got myself into? But we, going through that and then thinking about, you know, the, the nine Zoo Marsh banners, no to Marsh at Salzburg. Um, which okay wasn't everybody, but you know there was this resistance to him. The you know the, going to the Leipzig where Nagelsmann had been so successful and so popular, you know, filling those shoes, and then filling Bielsa's at Leeds. And I think unlike Nagelsmann, in circumstances where there was a lot of unrest and a lot, on, a lot of unhappiness about the fact that Leeds had even made that change, let alone gone for him as as coach. It sort of makes you think that he seems a bit drawn to this type of stuff. You know, he seems a bit drawn to the challenge of taking on jobs that look from the outside to be pretty difficult, you know, or, or pretty challenging. I don't doubt that there would have been easier jobs for him to have taken than this one. But I think he does have a lot of self-confidence. And I think what you see from him is kind of manifests itself internally in the amount of communication that he has with the players and you know the and and the staff and everybody else it's very different to Bielsa in that Bielsa Bielsa's style was not to get close to the players you know he didn't build up anything resembling personal relationships with them he just didn't think it was the right thing to do and it absolutely worked for him but I mean Marsh speaks to the players about you know technical and tactical stuff obviously but he'll chat to them about where they think they should be or want to be in five years time chat to them about life outside of football you know what do you do away from the game you know do you have a broad enough outlook so that your life just isn't business all the time i think i think they've quite wanted him right from the start and even though there's a lot of skepticism about him among the fans but also among us in the media you know the times last season where we were looking at it thinking not not sure about this at all I think the players have been pretty much on board with it. I think they do like him. I think they do like what he does. Um, and more and more, you start to see that coming out. Phil, we'll let you go on this one. But um, actually, I have a two-parter for you. Um, <laughs> first, um, has there been anything since Marsh took over that has stuck out to you as particularly surprising or illuminating? And second, you know, we're talking off the back of one of the best wins for Leeds in years. Uh, off of this 3-0 win on Chelsea. It's an incredibly positive moment at the club. Uh, but we should probably try and remain a little bit grounded. What are reasonable expectations for the club for the rest of the season in your mind? Yeah, to answer the second part first, they, they play Barnsley in the League Cup tonight. Barnsley are two divisions below them and Leeds being Leeds. You know, this this is, I think they win tonight, but this is exactly the sort of game that, you know, people go, well, wait a minute, you know what, that, that wasn't supposed to happen. They also go to Brighton on Saturday, which is a really difficult game. Mm -hmm. But I think to be fair to the crowd on Sunday, nobody seemed to be coming away from Ellen Road saying, we're going to win this, we're going to win that, we're going to qualify for Europe, we're going to finish in this position. I think it was more a case of coming away thinking this is actually showing a lot of potential and, and that's enough for the crowd. You know, I always say this about the crowd at Leeds, they're not entitled and actually if you play well, they appreciate it and that was what you saw on with the atmosphere on Sunday. There's just this sheer appreciation of, of how good it was. So I think it's enough for Marsh and Leeds to have a season where they're comfortably beyond relegation. So without picking out a specific position, you know, 10th, 12th, 14th, I think if they're arm's length from the bottom three all the way through the season, comfortable and, you know, basically looking like they're in control, then that'll be a really good start for him. And I think that's as, as much as as much as he needs. What I, what I think was most illuminating for me last season was Marsh's total conviction that they weren't going to be relegated. And also his ability to stop the dressing room splintering at a time when they were under absolutely huge pressure and that points did look like they were going to get relegated. Tactically and technically, it was not really working. You know, it wasn't clicking for him. It, it wasn't falling into place. But he his levels of communication seemed to work in keeping everybody on the same page, which was was absolutely crucial. And I did think there was a 
a decision made at the very last game down at Brentford when they could have been relegated. And he played a, a young lad, Sam Greenwood, um, who had barely figured before, um, had come in from Arsenal's academy. He's a forward um, by trade and Marsh played him as a cent- central midfielder. And even people high up at the club were saying, you know, look, that is the sort of decision that could get a manager sacked. You know, that is the sort of decision where if you lose and the club go down, people will say, why on earth did you do that? But Greenwood had a really good performance that day. The whole the system worked, you know, under pressure. It really did click. And I suppose if I'm being fair, looking back to that game, that was the sort of thing that made you think, you know, maybe he does have it up his sleeve and maybe he does have enough control of this that he can make it happen. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to see play out for sure. Um, Phil, thank you so much for joining us. For those of you listening, Phil has a couple of really nice pieces out on Sunday's victory and Jesse Marsh on The Athletic that he, I believe, published Monday and Wednesday, if I'm remembering correctly. One is called Major Leeds United, um, or it has that in the headline, which is some great wordplay. I don't know if that was you or the editors, but bravo. Uh, That Um, that was undoubtedly the editors, although John Muller, who worked for us, um, did come up with Major Leeds over the weekend. (laughs) It works well, for sure. So so that was fun. (laughs) But thank you so much for joining us, Phil. This has been fun. Thanks, guys. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder probably going to give some of you some whiplash you know talking premier league leeds united brendan aronson tyler adams i do want to talk a little bit more about aronson and adams maybe this show maybe another one um going back into a very allocation disorder topic really deep into the weeds mls homegrown rules paul they are they are a changing um (laughs) we wrote an article about this that published on tuesday evening uh it's sort of complicated paul do you want to take the people through it Yeah. So basically, you know, as the rules existed before, Major League Soccer teams had homegrown territories and those territories were geographic, you know, geographic territories. They were based, they they varied from market to market. So if you were in a bigger market, typically it was uh, 75 to 125 mile radius from your stadium or training facility. Um, If you were in a smaller market, it could be different. So, for example, Real Salt Lake has the entire state of Utah and the entire state of Arizona just because it's a less dense area. Um, Seattle has all of Washington and the state of Hawaii. Hawaii. I think the Timbers have Alaska and Oregon. Yeah. So, you know, that was how things worked before. And basically what that meant is that those teams had a monopoly on those areas. If you were a kid growing up in that area – you your MLS rights belonged to that MLS team. And the, and if you wanted to sign a homegrown contract with another team, that team would have to negotiate a price with your homegrown team. That's been a big point of contention over the last few years. And that's true, regardless of whether or not those kids ever even played in the academy of their quote-unquote home team. Correct. So I mean, we can look at the examples of the past. We had two of them in our story that published. You know, Caden Clark was born in Minnesota, left Minnesota before Minnesota United even started their academy to go to the Barcelona Academy in Casa Grande. And yet when he signed with the Red Bulls, they had to trade for his rights from Minnesota United, which again, did not have an academy that existed at the time that Caden Clark left his home state. So that just goes to show you how these rules work. And there's an even starker example with Christian Kappas, who grew up outside of Houston uh, was on the same academy team as Chris Richards, Houston Texans. They won a national title. Both him and Chris Richards left Houston Texans to go to FC Dallas. After that, um, and FC Dallas eventually, of course, signed Richards. They were allowed to sign him because he was from an an area, Birmingham, that wasn't claimed in a territory by any MLS yeah. team. So he was free to go wherever. Kappas grew up in Houston, the Dynamo's territory. He never played for the Dynamo, had no intention of signing with them. But when Dallas tried to sign him, 
Dynamo said, hey, you got to get our permission. You have to trade us, whatever. They weren't able to come to an agreement, Dallas and Houston. And Kappas ended up, instead of signing with an MLS team, ended up going to Denmark, where he still plays. He's switched teams. He's with Bronby now. Um, but, you know, MLS missing out on a guy who's a talented player who's, I believe, has a couple of caps for the U.S. national team. So it's it's been a weird system. But as Paul was getting to, it is changing. Yeah. And 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 that's kind of been the beef with the system is for a single entity league, you're, you're losing players, potentially good players because of these these rules. And so. You know, there were two factions on, on both sides and they found a compromise, essentially. And this compromise is the new rule, which is that instead of territories, MLS teams will have protected lists for their academy players, for their homegrown players. They can protect up to 45 players within their academy. And interestingly, they can protect nine players from their homegrown territory who do not play for their academy. So a total of 54 players, a maximum of 54 players, that can be protected by MLS teams. If you are not protected, you are free to move. Now, that there's a difference. If you are not playing for their academy and are not, not registered with an MLS academy, you can move wherever you want and you're not protected. If you are playing for an MLS team's academy, but you're not protected and you switch academies. There so is if a, I'm in the Chicago out. Fire Academy, but they, they are not protecting me, I can leave. Right. But there's a set schedule of payments determined by the league already based on a few different factors that the team I would leave to would have to pay should I ever sign a first team contract. I think they would have to pay pretty immediately, actually, from the academy oh. move to the academy move. But we wrote this damn story and it's still, you know, relative. What's interestingly is I also got a note that said, yes, it's a it's a, a set price. However, theoretically, it could be negotiated down. I don't think that too many teams are going to say like, we'll negotiate down from the price that you are required <laughs> to pay set by the league, but it could it's happen like, in theory. Hey, we don't want that. No, we'll take less. It's fine. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and interestingly, we don't know what that amount is yet. You know, teams haven't been informed what that amount is yet. I, I did hear a working number that most teams are discussing, but it's not a set number. So I'm not going to say it now, but that just goes to show you know, how much, dollars. how much this is changing as we go. Like this is a typical MLS rule change where teams are kind of finding out on the fly how things are going into effect and don't really know what the compensation will be yet for sure. Um, but they're all crafting plans around this now. And, you know, I spoke to some people who are saying on Tuesday, the teams were required to send in their, their first protected list. And these lists don't get updated on the fly like a discovery list. These lists can only be updated every few months. So the next list update will come in January. And the person I was talking to was saying it was a much different day for Greg Vanny in LA and Dave Casper in DC and, you know, the, the Academy crew in Dallas than it was for uh, the Portland Timbers or for Sporting Kansas City or uh, Charlotte, whose Academy has only been up and running for a couple years. You know, hey, probably there's some good talent in North Good Carolina, talent in Charlotte, man. but they're, they're, they're probably still sorting through. They probably have, like, who they have in their academy is who they've identified, you know, just because mm -hmm. they've, they've got to get up and running. Um, but, you know, it, there's some pretty big impact here, even though I don't think this has gone far enough. It is still a substantial step forward. And so, Sam, I'm going to start there. Just based on what I was reading on Twitter, I think the, the, the best place to, to kind of go at this is, who does this help the most and who does this hurt the most in your opinion? Hmm. Well, I think who does it help the most is players who are not on protected lists that want to go <laughs> to different MLS academies. I think sure. they now have freedom of movement. I want to hit back at something that you said though, before I answer your question, that this is a substantial, meaningful change. It's a change, but in some ways I think this is a, Distinction without a difference. Let's break I, I, let's break I it disagree. down. Bit, okay. In, in in some ways, not in every way. In some ways it's it's meaningful, but in some ways it's not. If if let's just throw pick a team, New York City FC. They protect 54 players. All right. 15 from their U15s, 15 from their 17s, 15 from their 19s, and nine players who are not in their academy, but who live within 75 miles. I think theirs is of their training facility in Orangeburg, New York. So they protect 54. There is no chance that all 54 of those players will turn pro one day. 
zero chance. Like that's not how this works. A, a good academy setup, you're probably churning out a pro or two per age group that goes on to have a real career. Like max, like that would be outstanding if that's what you're achieving. So 54 or 15 per age group, or I guess 18 per age group, if you really want to call it that, um, if you're adding in the nine outside, that's still an extreme level of protection. So, you know, I, I don't know if it's going to be a situation where we're going to see a lot more movement. However, back to my initial point, if you're not protected, well, you'll have that freedom, which is a good thing. And then for te- for kids who are growing up in bigger markets like New York or Los Angeles or even Dallas, where there's only one team, unlike N- NYC and LA, um, you could be the fifth best number 10 in Dallas, fifth best 16-year-old number 10 in in that area, meaning FC Dallas is going to have no use for you, basically. But maybe the fifth best number 10 in Dallas is a legit prospect and would be the best number 10 at age 16 in Portland or Kansas City or Minnesota or so on and so forth. So I think it'll be really good for those kids. Um, but my fear here, Paul, is that it, the Capus situation, the Clark situation, those aren't removed by this. And that's bad. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, again, like I said, I think that this is not going far enough. But I, you and I have both been covering this league for a long time. And here's why I think it's important. Well, it's I all think, compromises. Everything. I think it's, the, it's important in the same way that introducing really restricted free agency back in the 2015 CBA was important introducing $500,000 of TAM in 2015 was important because what it was is what, what happens in this league is, and this is my opinion, step for man, one giant leap for, they never can do things all at once. And they especially cannot do things all at once. If it, if it involves seeding control to the teams and, and that's where the basis of most of these decisions from the league comes from the, the, Player department, the head of the player department, Todd Durbin, they control things. And this is another example of how they they maintain some levels of control for the owners who have monopolies on their markets while also introducing some levels of freedom. It's an acknowledgement that the problem exists, that they, they can't just have one team scouting Chicago and deeming these are the best 25 players in this age group in all of Chicago. And that's the extent of the work that Major League Soccer is going to do to find the best players in Chicago. It's a problem. And when you see players like Christian Kappas leaving the country or Jonathan Gomez leaving Dallas to go to Louisville City, which is another, we have to acknowledge, it, is, is something that MLSC is coming. They knew they had to change, but they, they never are capable of making the change drastic. It needs to be gradual. And this so for me, the fact that this first step is happening means that future steps will happen because eventually what teams are going to say is, this is silly. We're putting the resources in. We're finding more players. Let's open this up. That's what's going to happen eventually. But they couldn't, I mean, they're already saying that, but they couldn't do it in the first step. So I think it matters because it's yeah. opened the door. You know, look at where free agency I'm not saying is it now I'm not saying it doesn't versus matter. where it, it was before. But yeah. Sam, to your point, I also think, you know, we have to acknowledge that, the, the first of all, the, the teams that are going to benefit the most from this are Portland and Kansas City and Real Salt Lake, teams in smaller markets who can now go and scout bigger markets. You know, Portland, I don't know if they'll change their policy and start to care about academies now that they can go and recruit in those in those areas. Maybe they will. But Sporting Kansas City and Real Salt Lake are two teams, Philly, who have already been recruiting nationwide have programs where kids can come and live there and train there and and come into their system. And I think they're going to get more aggressive. I think you're going to see Salt Lake get more aggressive. I think Philly has been probably the most aggressive team in recruiting players. I think that's going to get, you know, ramped up. And the teams who aren't going to like this as much are LA and New York and Dallas and Chicago teams that are in bigger markets that have a little bit, have a bigger advantage theoretically. 
Now, they can go out and do those same things. They can do the same things, but why would you, right? Like theoretically, if you are in those markets, you should be. Dallas Dallas doesn't need to go crazy, right? They they have a a very strong market. Tanner Testman's from Birmingham. Chris Richards is from Birmingham. They they have recruited outside of their area. But my point is, I don't think, I think that they are more concerned. I think that they will recruit outside the area and they have an advantage of showing that they have a pipeline, just like Mm -hmm. Philly does. I just think that they're they're just as much are going to have to be a little bit on the defensive, make sure they're taking care of their own because they're losing players, right? They, they lost yes. Gomez to Dallas. They've lost multiple players now to USL teams. I think there's been three in the last But, but year. the thing is, is, is you can protect 15 per age group. It's not that hard to take care of your own. But you know, but, you don't have to worry so much about being poached if you can protect the top 15 guys. But, but here team. again, I go into this idea of of MLS trying to make gradual change, but they're going to come up against the problem that they can't ignore for very much longer. And that is that the USL exists, that they're investing more in youth development, that they see a model in which they can give players more attractive contracts in the sense that they're shorter term with an incentive to sell you Easier to for a more reasonable price. Yourself. Right. Yeah. Yes. And and teams like Dallas that are going to block kids from moving to where they want to move are going to lose them to USL teams. And MLS is going to have to start making a decision. I mean, we don't know eventually. that Dallas is going to do that, do we? I, 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 I'm saying that if you, let, if you put a kid on your protected list, the only thing you're protecting them from is other MLS teams. You're mm-hmm. not protecting them from USL teams. You're not protecting them from teams... Yeah overseas and and so that's where i think this change falls short it doesn't acknowledge that level of competition i also think that the notion that we can trust chicago to pick the right 54 players to protect is flawed you know any team these are four 15 year olds right You're that's what i'm saying I'm, I'm, I'm picking chicago yeah. because they're the they're the one team that has the biggest market without competition there's two la teams there's two new york teams there's yeah. one chicago team and you know the idea that they could pick that they were going to select the best 75 players in their academy and have those players as homegrown eligible was flawed or, or they might and, be the best 54 at that particular moment but in six months they're not going to be yeah right so i do think that it opens up the opportunity to find more players and for somebody who you know this was the point that bob bradley made when i wrote the story about the same issue two years ago you know if there's a player in um columbus at the time greg berhalter was coaching let's say Greg Berhalter likes to play 4-2-3-1, or let's, let's say Dallas. They're playing 4-3-3 with Nico. They want to play a little bit more soccer. He And this kid is Brendan Aronson. This kid is wants to run and press. He's Tyler Adams. If you're thinking about where you want to sign, it makes more sense to sign with Philly or with the Red Bulls. Mm-hmm. And maybe Dallas knows that that's a good player, but you know has no interest in that player because of that. This opens up those possibilities as well. So, I think it's progress. Potentially, potentially, potentially it does. Because right. if they protect that kid, then they can still extract a price. Right. And, and and maybe they weren't even involved in his development at all in the first place. And that to me is where like, all right, yeah, it's better than it was before. It was terrible before. Yes. It was really bad before. This is a this is a step in the right direction. But there's still a long way to go. And like that's agree. the thing here. It's it's just like artificial constructs that limit competition in yes. a way that that restricts ambition and restricts <laughs> best practices. It's the story of Major League Soccer. It is. It is. I do think, again, I go back to this is a first step, in my opinion. This is a first step and an important one because it, it really what it does, it should, and I believe it will, open the door to the change that's truly necessary. But I also think that in the immediacy, it, it's going to, for the teams who operate the worst in this space, and that worst doesn't mean like ignoring academies in general. The worst are the teams who don't invest as much as they should in their academies and yet block everyone from their homegrown territories from moving elsewhere, even if those kids who don't want to be there. Who are the worst defenders in these ways? DC United was. I don't know if it's changed. I would say that I would say that in the opinion of people I've spoken to in the league, a lot of people are looking at the DC market as as the area that that they're mm-hmm. gonna go recruit the most because they feel like DC United hasn't done has has been protectionist at a time when they and, weren't and investing academy, at the level they their could. academy was pay to play for a long time they right. were the last one on that model right so so like dc united is going to have to change and and 
I'm sure they would argue that they have changed in the last few years to a and certain degree. And, they, and they, true. it's true. They, they yeah. have a training facility now. They've, mm -hmm. they have new coaches now. They've, they've had several homegrown players come through the system and, and, and shoot Kevin Paredes was sold for seven and a half million dollars. Yeah. But they, it's not just about those players in the system, like their relationships with clubs in the area, all of those things are going to have, it's going to have to start changing. And I, I'm not trying to pick on DC United here. I think that's something that's going to have to change in a lot of different places. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're pulling DC out here as an example, because there are people who pointed to that in, in the conversations that I was having, but like, and you know, being from the DC area, I know a little bit more um, just because I have friends who work in the youth soccer space in that area. But like, I, there are a number of teams in MLS who are going to have to change their approach because they can't just protect. They they can't just have control over everyone anymore. You know, so it's going to require. Well, if they want to do the best possible job they can in those markets, it's going to require more investment, you, more youth scouts. Um, pay, paying more attention to what you've got around yeah. you, so it'll it'll motivate a little bit of that, some some of those good behaviors and good practices, which is which is good. But again, there there still is a lot more incentive if you just open up the whole thing entirely. So we'll see where this goes. We'll see if it changes again. We'll see if they continue moving in this direction or not. Uh, I think it's a it's a better place than it was yesterday or two days ago or last week, but it's not it's still not where it should be. And, and I think it's kind of important to couch it in those terms. Before we close this, I do want to say, you know, this is the point I stick with all the time. And, and it's the one I've, I've harped on with this policy the entire time. You know, because it, a lot of people have told me, you know, this is driven by the owners not wanting to give up their, this, these monopolies on these markets. MLS is a single entity league. So much of what they do is driven by that idea of single entity. Doing what's best for the league, not just what's best for one club. And ultimately, what's going to start happening is the league is going to continue to lose good players to other leagues, whether it's USL or leagues in Europe, because of policies like this, especially because of this policy. And, and this is a change, but like you said, it's not a big enough change. And I think that it's interesting that they are unwilling to recognize that in this case, this rule is not what's best for the league. That what's best for the league is to keep as many and catch as many of the good players in the United States as possible as homegrowns in Major League Soccer. Even if it means that you're not going to get the all of the best players in your market. And until they, they are able to acknowledge that, this rule is going to fall short of where it should be. And I just wonder if it's going to take the same amount of time it took to get to this point, which is years, like four or five years of debate, yeah. to get to the next phase and i don't think so because i think the environment around mls is changing so rapidly and so drastically that it's going to force their hand yeah. but but ultimately we have like i just i can't harp enough on saying like this policy as it stands even this new one isn't good for the league the league's ability to get and capture as many good young players as possible right. into the system well i think we need to start we need to remind ourselves, Paul, that these decisions are made by individual owners. Yes, it is a single entity league, but they're not always thinking in terms of what's best for the league. A lot of times they're thinking what's best for me and what's best for my club. And that's the prism and the lens through a lot of through which a lot of these changes or rules are made. And it's not always about what's best for the league. Sometimes it's about what's best for them and finding a little bit of a compromise between what's best for them and what's best for the league and maybe kicking and screaming and saying, well, this old way works best for me. A lot of other people want to move, but I'm going to be a governor on how far that goes. And so that's, I don't know. It's a helpful reminder for us in our own coverage, I suppose. Um, anyway, do you, do you want to, do you have any other final thoughts on this? Or you, you, did you, did you say what you need to say? I feel did like I ranted enough. I feel like I ranted enough today. All right. Well, we're going to come back with one final segment. We're going to talk a little bit about LAFC versus Austin. Big game on Friday in Texas. Uh, and we're going to talk, I, I want to talk a little bit about the Aronson and Adams stuff that I mentioned earlier and how their starts maybe impact the national team. Stay with us. Allocation disorder. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome back to Allocation Disorder. Final segment of this week's show. A couple of topics coming at you. Start with a continuation or a slight twist on the discussion we had in the first segment with Phil Hay about Leeds United. Sticking with Tyler Adams. I almost said Tyler Aronson. Uh, and Brendan Aronson, and how their form maybe shapes the national team and potentially Greg Berhalter's plans for Qatar. Both of them have gotten off to, I think it's fair to say, excellent starts in the Premier League. Uh, Better, I think, than most people, myself included, would have expected. Both are hitting the ground running and flying. Adams is doing what he does best, covering a ton of ground, breaking up a ton of plays, not doing a ton in terms of distribution and like really incisive passing. He's been clean, but a lot of it has been sideways and backwards. And then Aronson similarly doing what he does best. Everyone saw the goal on Sunday against Chelsea where he just closed down Mendy incredibly quickly, took him by surprise, took the ball right off his foot and then just tapped it home for into an empty net for his goal. Uh, but pressing incredibly well, playing on the half turn, everything forward, everything fast. Paul, how has their form or has their form changed how you think about anything for the U.S. heading into the World Cup? Yeah, I mean, I think it's changed, in my mind, the starting 11. Um, if, if it continues at this rate, I think Brendan Aronson is a no-doubt starter in Qatar Especially if he continues to play at this level. Still yeah, with Tim Weah injured right now, an ankle injury. Now, this is not one that's going to extend to November, but you know, could likely hold him out of the September friendlies. And with Gio Reyna, you know, still working back into fitness and we haven't really seen him reach a level to be a consistent starter in a while, I would say that Brendan Aronson has kind of, for me, become the default player to start on the right wing, opposite mm-hmm. Christian Pulisic. I think both of Gio Reyna and Tim Weah bring very good options off the bench. You know, obviously Weah with his pace, his his ability to make those runs in behind, his service from the right side has been very good and he's been yeah. really goal dangerous and he's a different profile of winger. He likes to play a little bit wider. He likes to be a little bit more vertical, um, whereas Pulisic and Reyna and Aronson at times as well likes to come inside and and um, play a little bit more centrally. So I think he would be a fine option off the bench. And Gio Reyna, of course, can play centrally. He can play on a wing. His versatility and his playmaking ability um, and I think certainly his fitness history um, yeah. make him a prime candidate to, to be a player coming off the bench versus starting. So I think in that way... Yeah, my mind has changed, you know, in, in saying that I think Brendan should be starting. And, and you know, I, I don't think with Tyler much has changed because of what we saw in the summer. You know, Greg Berhalter made some tactical tweaks where Eunice Musa was dropping deeper to get on the ball and mm-hmm. had more responsibility to um, to advance the ball for the U.S. And I think that was an acknowledgement of like, this is what Tyler does really well. He wins the ball. He breaks things up. He helps start transition moments. He covers so much ground. He opens things up for players around him so that they don't have as many defensive responsibilities at in key moments. And he's so good at that and maybe not as good on the ball and, and with line breaking passes and, and making those movements. So we're going to just allow him to do what he does really well. And we're going to let Eunice do more of that. And I think that's probably going to have to be the tactical decision at the World Cup as well. I don't know. Do you? I know, Sam. You. This is something like that you were noting in World Cup qualifying, and really liked what you saw with Eunice in those games in June when you were when you were there. Yeah, and I think that'll continue because you know the way Leeds play, they don't really ask Adams to be that guy, and that's fine. That this is his sweet spot. I think that's fair to say he is elite at breaking stuff up. And and at closing people down and being a really, really good ball winner and defensive midfielder. And Berhalter was asking him to do a little bit more. I think that was a totally fair thing for him to ask. Uh, and Adams, you know, he was okay, but he's not great at that. That's not a strong suit. So I think we'll see. 
think we'll continue to see Musa playing deeper next to Adams and handing a little bit more of the distribution responsibilities. I agree with you on Aronson and starting, but I, I, I'm very curious if that's how it ends up shaking out where he is positioned. If he's because because when Wea, who I believe has started more games recently, I'm just doing that off the top of my head. But when Wea plays, it's very much you know on the touchline, like very wide. Uh, Aronson for his club likes to operate in more central positions. Phil was talking about it in the first segment where leads are almost playing with three number tens, where they're all pretty narrow and none of them are popping out super wide. So we've seen that with Aronson in the US particularly in that friendly against Morocco in June. That was a little bit of a different shape. Serginho Dest was not playing right back. Reggie Cannon was playing right back, which is a very important distinction. Um, but Pulisic and Aronson, they were both playing pretty centrally for them. And, and the fullbacks were providing the width. Uh, and Wea was providing width because Aronson wasn't even playing as a winger in that match. So I'm very curious to see what, Berhalter does with the shape because I think Aronson is more effective when he's stationed a little bit more inside. But if you're playing Musa and Adams in McKenney, you know, are you clogging space for yourself and creating problems in that way? Maybe a little bit. So interesting decisions to be made in the September camp, which Paul is less than a month away now, only a few weeks. It's crazy. I don't, I don't think either of us, before we move on to the tally of seeing Austin, are ready to say let's bench Weston McKenney or Eunice Musa for, to find a role centrally for Brendan Aronson, though, right? No, no, uh, particularly not Musa, because you know, like you don't want Aronson that deep. That's that's not his that's not his game. If you wanted to do it for McKenney, oof. I mean, I think you maybe could. It would change the team quite a bit. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily go that route. Um, if you were going to go all out, like press, like we're going to just play marsh ball, then okay. Yeah, do it that way. But that's not how you, you can't really play that way with a national team for a lot yeah. of different reasons. So I think having McKenney in there and disrupting and breaking things up, uh, he's a better ball winner than Aronson is, better in duels. Um, not that Aronson's bad at that stuff, but McKenney's a different level there. So yeah, I don't, I think that midfield trio will stay. Uh, anyway, moving on. LAFC and Austin. Play on Friday night. LAFC have a pretty substantial lead, uh, more substantial than they did a couple of weeks ago. I believe they are nine points atop the Supporter Shield standings, or six points atop the Supporter Shield standings, nine points ahead of Austin, second in the West. Interesting battle, all the same, coming on Friday night. Uh, I believe that game is on ESPN. National audience, always a good thing. Uh, I'm intrigued to watch it. Um, personally, I'm excited for it. Austin can maybe, maybe make it a little bit competitive uh, in the Western Conference coming down the stretch if they can pick up all three and cut that lead to six. I think LAFC will probably win the West regardless and the Shield for that matter. Um, but Paul, two interesting teams, two fun teams to watch, uh, and two teams that have gone about building in significantly different ways. So let's let's just dive in quickly and, and kind of examine how they've they've gotten to this point. Yeah, well, I think, you know, for me, what stands out about Austin that I think is important to note is that they they stayed patient. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of expansion teams when things don't go perfectly in year one. Fire coaches. Miami. Completely upend the roster, <laughs> design of the roster, how you're doing things. Yeah, I mean, like, look at Miami. Like, it was five games, seven games into the season, and they pivoted their strategy completely away from younger DPs and younger players to Matuidi and Iguain. Didn't work out great. One of those players yeah. that were targeting, Sebastian Drusi, looks like he could be the MVP of the league this year. It looks like. What kind of odds do you think you yeah, can get on yeah, that? Pretty good odds on that right now, you know? And so, you know, those types of actions have consequences that go beyond that year, right? Not just short-term consequences. They they have long-term consequences. Mm -hmm. And so I think I want to start there with Austin. They, they stayed patient despite, you know, not the ideal expansion year. They went and found some some players that they thought could could finish for them in the final third. You know, they brought Drusi in last year, and it's paid off. And and I I think again I always emphasize that your ability to adjust not just in the summer window but in the January window after your expansion year is almost more important than that first window. It's not more important, but it's almost it's 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 right there, man, because it it allows you to to fix things and to fill holes when you have a little bit more of an idea of how things work together. And so I think 
that's where I want to start with Austin, you know, and yeah. then, you know, they've added the right pieces to make this team work. They still need to improve, right? Like the data says they're outperforming what they should be doing, but they're fun to watch. They play, they play like fun soccer. They score a lot yeah. of goals, open games, and yeah. they've been successful. Yeah. And they've done it with a lot of MLS guys. Obviously, yeah. Jerusi is the headliner. But when you look at who's making big contributions on this team, Alex Ring, Diego Fagundes, Maxia Rudy, Nick Lima, guys that were castoffs, rejects from other clubs. And they've found a way to come in, bring them in and, and maximize their talents and their abilities and kind of rehabilitate their careers in some cases. And so I think that's important too. You have a you have a team there uh, with with Josh Wolf and with Claudio Reyna and his front office that that knows MLS and is experienced in the ways of the league and know the player pool. And I think that's been beneficial to them. You, Paul, you mentioned the, the numbers and the data uh, and how they've outperformed them a bit this year. They underperformed them last year, right? So so their expected goals, they, they were underperformed by a lot. Drew C has helped correct that significantly, I would say, this year. Um, so yeah, I don't think they're all the way there yet. I think they still need to work on, on defensive stuff in particular uh, and become a little bit tighter in the back. Uh, that was pretty eloquent defensive stuff. Wow. Um, but you know, it's, I think an encouraging build and I'm, I'm curious to see where they take it. LAFC of course have done it a lot differently, but I think they've done a really good job of kind of reloading on the fly. I mean, Sam, yeah. they were in first place going into the summer window and this is what yeah. they've done. Chiellini Bale, re-signing Vela, Sebastian Mendes, Buanga, by the way, and, let's and now they're Mendes switching out moves, another DP. I think was excellent. Yeah. The Sebastian Mendez move. Um, I think he's a decent player, and they got him for like three hundred k. Yeah, that I was mean, weird to me. I, I just think what's interesting about it is they they made a huge adjustment in the in the winter, right? They went to mm-hmm. find more MLS talent to build up the core of the team to make sure they had those 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 players who can grind it out, who know the league, who, who add that element that they knew they were missing. They got older for sure. You know, this is a team that's been typically much younger. They got older, um, which is fine. They're trying to win a championship and they're now looking for players that are going to get them there. And, you know, and I think they've, again, in a, in a kind of the same way, in a, not the same way, in a similar way to Toronto, they kind of are are push shoving all in. They're they're putting their money down on the table they're right absolutely now. Absolutely all to in win, to win a trophy, right? They, they, they haven't gotten that MLS Cup yet. They've been bad in the playoffs. And and they haven't always gotten there, by the way. We all remember last season. <laughs> um but I think they've won one playoff series in in club history. You know, they lost to an RSL team 3-3-2, I believe, at home in a game that RSL had two shots on goal and scored three goals, <laughs> which is one of my favorite stats of all time in any sport ever. But one thing that I think is worth pointing out here, Paul, the DPs and the big names get all the, get all the attention out there and deservedly so. And Brian Rodriguez looks like he's heading out and, and Teo maybe coming in. Uh, but they've done a nice job, particularly recently of freeing up a lot of allocation money for themselves. They ran into a huge problem before the 2020 season budgetary wise. And that resulted in them have, needing to create space before the season began, which resulted in them needing to trade Walker Zimmerman. We all know how that went poorly. You know, you, you could say that LAFC's drop off in 2020 and 2021 was, was almost entirely due to that. It was a huge factor. And he's become one of the best players for Nashville, one of the best defenders in MLS, maybe the best defender in MLS and a big part of the U.S. national team since. Um, since then, they've, they've done a decent job of finding allocation money, whether through sales, whether through trades, whether through loans. Um, and that's allowed them to do some of the things that they did this summer in terms of those signings. And I think that's been really important um, because if you're going to succeed in a sustained way, you're going to have to find that those little dollars and cents any way you can. Or and big they've dollars. Done, and they've, done, they've done a good job of that with Atuesta, um, Rossi recently and now it looks like rodriguez although who knows what kind of fee that'll end up being yeah and a few a few smaller sales that have helped as well over over the course of those years as well yeah every dollar helps all that game i mean you're adding a million game here a million game there even if the transfer fee is only a million and a half two million that's a huge huge that's how you can go out and get maxime kerpo you know that's how you can go out and get ryan's ryan hollingshead and so on and so forth acosta that was kind of a straight up trade for k so we we don't need to talk about that one as much but 
but yeah, two interesting, interesting models. But I think the commonality here, Paul, is both have relied heavily on existing players in MLS, at least in the current iterations of their team. Yeah, good balances and, in and, and rosters. going out and grabbing them and inserting them into roles that fit them well and developing them in some cases and, and really getting good impact from guys that were already in the league. In addition to some of those big names like Drew C or Vela or Bale. For sure. Should be an interesting one on Friday night. Yeah. I'm excited to watch. Um, one, one note, actually, uh, I was told little birdie hit me up and let me know ESPN actually switched their main crew. So it's a double header on Friday night, Austin and LAFC, I think at 8 PM Eastern followed by Timber Sounders at 10 PM. And, and initially Taylor Twelman and John champion, the A team were on Timber Sounders, right? The marquee name rivalry matchup. And they switched it to Austin and LAFC to kind of show you, hey, Austin's got a cool thing going down there at Q2 Stadium, and it's a much bigger matchup as well. Yeah. Anyway, um, thanks for listening to Allocation Disorder. I thought this was a fun episode. We should do more guests, huh? Yeah, I, it was great. Guests. It was great. All right, cool. Thanks for listening. I'm Sam. He's Paul. We'll be back next week.